not really sure how we'll introduce it. We'll just kind of feel it out as we go. This will be the first episode of Unreasonable. Is that the title? Is that what I we're think, going I with? I think it is. I mean, it came it came organically. I don't know why we wouldn't just use that unreasonable. Yeah. So. So this will be a different. This will be a different experience for me. Um, I guess that'll be a great way to start, right? Like the why this seems like a good idea. Yeah. So this would be a little bit different experience for me. I have the, you know, I have, we have the gym podcast. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that I'd like to talk about or that I think about that don't really fit well in the gym podcast, mm -hmm. right? Like we were, before we started this recording this, we were talking about um, recreational drugs, yeah. um, ideologies. We've, we've had really great conversations, you know, political leanings, the way that the whole coronavirus thing is being handled, um, the way that people are approaching it. Um, so I think that this would be a really great, fun place for that to live. And one of the reasons I wanted to most do it with you was because I appreciate your opinion. And I don't think, I don't think we share the same views on things, right. all things. Right. And I think that we're, we're able and willing to have an intelligent discussion as to why. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the great things for me when you asked was that I live in a world that is social work, right? Mm. Which is left leaning to say the least, right? And having conversations outside that box can be difficult at times. And then I also live in a world that is mostly, is, is female dominated in that profession, right? In my mm -hmm. graduate school classes of 12, I'm one, I'm, there are two men in that class, right? So, and that's pretty much the norm. Yeah. So having some of the difficult conversations where you're allowed to be wrong, right? and then kind of move forward from there are not happening where right. I live. So it was like, okay, I get a chance to talk about things that in a different way than I have to in a protected form in those classes. Mm. Do you think that, do you find that you have to talk about them in a, now I'm interested already, yeah. right? Do you find you have to talk about them in a different way because of the demographic? It's not necessarily the, 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 the female demographic doesn't, I don't think, make place too much into it. It is just the nature of what you're doing for a living, right? You're advocating for people mm. over and over and over again. And then people who, people who don't advocate for people on a regular basis, right? It's hard for them to wrap their mind around, well, why are you helping that person? Oh. Right? And so then you dig your heels in even more, even more, even more, and then you're get to a point where you're beyond reason sometimes. Yeah, so, I can see that. But also I'm I think the oldest person in my class is fifty eight and the youngest person is twenty three. Okay. Which makes for it an, an interesting dynamic at times. Yeah. But it still ends up being follow the code of ethics follow this, follow that. It's all laid out for you, mm. which kind of takes away from some thoughts sometimes or questioning, but. So one step back, you're going to school for, and you're in your, you're achieving your master's right now, yes? So post-secondary? Yeah, yeah post-secondary. So I'll have a, a master's in social work, 
Um, my first year internship was uh, all individual one-on-one -on -one based. My second year, which is this year, is all macro based, which is basically meaning that it's organization based. So it's writing grants, um, procuring funds, holding fundraisers, all sorts of things like that. The writing grants is one of the big ones. And then also uh, writing policy mm. is another one. So. so you come from, you know, that a, a different place of experience with mm -hmm. that than I would say, like you had talked, then the average person who may have formulated their opinion based only on their experience or what they read on Facebook to be frank. Yeah. Yeah. Mine comes like, and, and one of the things that, that they teach you to do, one of my old supervisors was really good at is linking experience with behavior, mm. right? Why? And not just looking at behavior as the only thing that's happening, right? That person, right, is a product of time, right? And their time which is leading to the behavior being done, mm. right? As frustrating as it may be, right? The repetitive nature of drug use, the repetitive nature of just reoffending and everything, and all sorts of things like that. There, if you do an assessment on enough people, it's going to show you why. Okay. So. Yeah, I think that's interesting. A lot of people might think that well, why can't they just, or, you know, I mean, so I think about it, you know, from ideological perspectives, why people have the opinions they, they have about the things that they have. So you, it's very easy to fall into at some point in time, like, well, why can't they just see reason? Why can't they, why can't they understand this side, this perspective? Why can't they make the decision to stop doing those things? Why can't they just do it? Right. There's a, there's this big, not big, but there is this, there is this feeling among what I would say the general human, the general person of like, well, can't they just change? Can't they just do it? Well, and I mean, if you're talking about general change and general people and thought processes and things like that, like what you've been thinking your whole life, right? What you've grown up with. If you've never seen anything else and somebody goes, why can't you just see it my way? Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a that's a complete recalibration of your brain and it is it is I, I don't know how to describe it but it is just this the idea that somebody's going to take what they're familiar with and move into this completely foreign realm away from that right there's a lot to lose sure right and not just and you're talking family and friends and way of life and all sorts of things. Well, it's so. like you looked at this world, right? You looked at this world in a very particular way and we'll call it a mirror, mm -hmm. right? You looked at, you looked into this mirror and you saw these very specific things. And then someone at some point in time comes along and asks you to break that mirror and then try to put it back together so that you could also see these things or maybe add another layer, right? So rather than just having one mirror, now there's a mirror in front and behind you. And now you have to see how these actions reverberate and they, they act through time and experience with other people. Well, and I think one way of doing that is getting that from people you come in contact with, right? And you and I have both been fortunate enough, and I was fortunate enough in my early and mid-20s, into late-20s, to travel, mm. right? To see and talk to people and see different ways and how things are done differently and why they're done differently. 
and why people think the way they do. And then for me coming back to the the area that I'm from, which is Southwest Michigan, right? It's a different perspective without even having that forced change upon you. Like it just kind of happened because mm. you're experiencing different people. Right. Right. And there's good all over the place and there's bad. Mm. Right. So I'm not from here, have always been from here, always lived here. Right. That way of thinking was not protected because I went out and saw some things and met some people and did some things for about 10 years. I think that that's important. Um, some of the most unreasonable people that I've met have never left their own little echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And even when they did, they, they moved to, or they sought out the exact same experience in a different location. They searched for the same groups of people. They searched for a town that was relatively the same, that held the same beliefs or structure. It wasn't like, all right, I'm going to go and we're going to see what happens. Right. And I said, I just, my initial floundering in that was college. I went to three different schools, Mm. right? And where was the first one you moved to again? It was in Branson, Missouri. Oh yeah. And it was, I've been to Branson. Yeah. I I, I don't don't mind Branson, right? I don't think I'll ever need to go back to Branson. It's a special, (laughs) special place. I can tell you, I mean, it's Southwest Missouri, right North of Arkansas, just in, Oklahoma's right there, Mm -hmm. and it is hill country and everything that goes with that. Now, the college there is consistently ranked in the top five of conservative schools in the country. Oh, really? Why I went there was to play ball. Mm -hmm. I was to play baseball. You go there, and I went there on a visit and kind of heard all the rules. I'm like, fine, I can tough this out for the type of scholarship they're talking about giving me. Like, let's do that. Now, I went there and realized that that wasn't going to last. But instead of just making a change, I made them change it for me. Mm. Right Now, I met good people there who think completely differently than I do. Right, Different walks of life, but we bonded over baseball, then bonded over life still. Mm-hmm. Right, Still talk to a few of them today. Right? I, that's, what, 17 years ago yeah. for me. So... And then I went to a local junior college, and then from there went to a college near Dayton, Ohio. All right. Getting along with Buckeye fans was a different path. (laughs) Still doesn't happen um, very much, but I still played baseball there too. And then from there it was Colorado. Right. Then a few other places. Lived in like. Like, there's things that you don't tell your parents, too. Like, I, I went places and I stayed in my car for a while. Yeah. Right? Just because I wanted to be somewhere else. Right? To see what it was. Right? Then you get tired of that. And I moved to uh, just north of Detroit. Lived there for a few years. And then it's funny how things work out because then, you know, you start your career. And then people hear you start your career back home. They're like, why don't you come back? I got this thing for you here. And mm. then it's been progressively that since i've been here so i've been home for about five or six years now okay so but it gave me the opportunity to meet and see like from the south to the very liberal 
I don't even know if they would call themselves liberal as much as they would just say that they're free. Yeah. In Colorado, like I worked. Oh at a, yeah. I worked We're, at a ski resort, right? And yeah. then at night, I worked at a bar. Like they, their concern was not politics; it was powder. Yeah. You know, it was fresh snow and fun and. <laughs> Whatever else they could fresh get fresh powder bra, exactly, and it was exactly that. Yeah, it was <laughs> like I didn't think it was a real thing till I got there. I'm like, and somebody said that to me. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going. Yeah. right. <laughs> I like the things that are packed and tracked. Like I'm not trying to go through trees and things like oh. that, dude. I'll be on some skis and like, don't like you put me on any kind of bumps. I'm gonna get launched. Like it's not okay. Yeah, like it's, this this frame is not built for, for <laughs> not built for speed downhill. Like, well, it's, maybe it's built for speed, but not necessarily agility. Yeah, yeah. So was, I mean, but I had a great time out there. But it was meeting those people and then getting involved in a business type world in Detroit. Then followed up with you know getting into psych more. Uh, my degree field after that was, he said, an opportunity to gain new perspective than what I had grown up with. Did you ever think you'd end up back here? When I first left, no. Right? I was a person that was getting out and not coming back. But when you... I spent basically the entirety of my 20s single, too. Mm. So when you go that long, right, you kind of understand, start to understand the value of family. Mm. Right? And what they mean and why they mean that. Right? So... When an opportunity came to come back home, I was like, I could do that now where I would not have been able to do that when I first left. Mm. I would have been mad. Sure. So felt like I I I was almost out and it pulled me back, kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Or what am I still doing here? Yeah. I never got to see or do the things that I wanted to do. And I think that kind of my wife and I talk about this leading that those type of things lead to midlife crisis. Sure. Right. I have no desire for those sorts of things because I, I know what they felt like. Yeah. Right. And the speed to which they felt like and the 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 recovery that was necessary afterwards, I don't think I could endure that now. <laughs> my body my body would give up. I, I don't think it, it I don't think it has that in it anymore, right? Because I did it and I have no desire to do it. Like, which is why having kids at thirty when I was thir- having a child when I was thirty three was so much better than anything I, like I, I couldn't have even had a child at 30 and had it been all right, mm. right? 33 was right where it was needed to be so. yeah that's that's important that's an interesting topic about having kids right so you know i get we get to both of us get to talk to a lot of people over the course of a day right right and uh i had a i had a client once who was talking to me about their kids nutritional habits they said something to the effect of, I can't get her to eat anything except goldfish and gogurt. And I said, my response was, they're going to, I was like, then stop buying it. Mm-hmm. They're going to eat what's provided to them. And yes, if they want goldfish and gogurt, I mean, they, I think the kid, 11 or so, yeah. it's not like it's a small child anymore. Yeah, 11, that'd be a different story, absolutely. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a small child, it's, it's, even if it was. I'm of the opinion that, yes, it might be hard to get them to eat vegetables and protein for a couple days, but you go, I've been a kid. I mean, you go a couple days without eating and you're going to be like, well, fine, I'll eat it. 
you're going to have to have the willpower to get over that two days of crisis that you might have because, you know, food is, food is addicting. Right. And I think uh, there's a, there's a way that I would go about it that isn't strictly like you're going to. Sure. Right. Agreed with that. Right. Like you need to convince them why it's a better decision for them and you can layer in well, kind of... Well, even, even logic uh, has its place, like, but not necessarily initially, right? What, what do kids and people in general fight for their entire lives? Comfort. In, in control. Comfort, control, yeah. Right, especially an 11-year-old who's a, a budding philosopher, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? They're already, they know what's best. They have an idea. They're starting to really get these organic thoughts about how I should be able to do these things, mm -hmm. right? All right, well, if you think that's the way, how do we, as a family, fit in the way you're thinking into what we need to do, mm. right? It's having a say. Yeah. It's Then that's the essence of what we call motivational interviewing, right? It's letting people come up with their own ideas so mm. that they'll actually do them, right? Instead of giving them to the people, which yeah. is, then it's just your idea. And there's no weight behind it. Yeah. Right. I do that well with adults. I struggle to find out how to do that with people who whose prefrontal cortex isn't fully formed yet. It's a struggle. And I I, I can't say that it's always going to work, right? I, I, any of these things. But it's if you give a child, an 11-year-old, a platform. Yeah. Right? That's important. Wait. Wait. They're treating. Whoa. This yeah, is what yeah. I wanted. Right. Right? The whole the whole thing ended up with, uh, I mean, obviously no resolution was come to it. It all ended up with, you know what? I just can't wait till you have children. See how difficult it is. That seems to be the uh, <laughs> that seems to be what I noticed from most parents. That seems to be the 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 go to argument for anything that's con that's contradictory to how they're currently doing anything. You know what? I just I can't wait till you do it and see how difficult this is. Yeah, well, in that re in that respect, I don't think the person the, like if you if that's going to be your response to something, why are you bringing it up to me? Yeah, right. That's you just wanted me to pat your head and tell you, you know what it is hard. You're right. Mm -hmm. You didn't want to hear any contradicting information. Yeah, which is another thing um, that I would that we're going to definitely dive into and talk about accepting information that doesn't currently fit into your belief structure. I think one of the most challenging things we're going to have with doing this podcast is staying on a single topic. Right. Or like fully like working down, working, working out a thought. We're going to have to put some constructs or parameters well, on this I thing. Well, I think this is a good, I mean, this is a start. Right? Yeah. The, the start is, is uh, important because it's now, it's now you can, all you can do is make progress from here. Yeah. Right? And if it is a little bit choppy at first, then so be it. Right. But it's kind of getting a feel for how it's going to work and how we're going to work into it. And I, yeah. But yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll go super space cadet over here, 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 <laughs> here, 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 and then end up somewhere where we didn't intend to be. But maybe that's the spot we're supposed to be at that point. That's, that was deep. Yeah. It's deep. But it, go, it, the, it all kind of, that took me down a thought process that started with, you know, what I've said for, a, well, is 31 years now is the one of the reasons that I haven't had children is because I'm far too selfish at this stage of my life. Mm -hmm. Like I know what, I, I imagine I know what it would take to do that well. And I'm unwilling to make the sacrifices necessary to do that well. Because 
I don't want to like just have a kid to have a kid right. and then end up feeling like I've done this in, poorly in some way, shape or form. Right. Because no, I can see that just deteriorating, you know, self-value, self, like all of this stuff. And I, I, I understand what you're saying there just because that was, that was where I was at and I wasn't nearly as productive. Mine was more destructive mm. by means. Like it was just, there's a lot of drinking and going out and I lived with two of my best friends, right? In a house that was, I was just over there yesterday. Uh, I stopped by and we were just, we were laughing about it because we're both 35 now and thinking about those three to four years in our late twenties, early thirties, we were like, what was happening? <laughs> like what we just laughed about some of the things that came through those doors. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. And now we both have children, right. And are could not have done it at that point. Yeah. Right. And if I would have been forced to do it, I don't know how good I would have been at it. Not that I'm any good at it now. Like it's just, but it's, it feels more natural than it would have been. At that makes that sense. Because I was not. Yeah, I was, I was, I was drinking and it took, and I'll tell you what it took. It took uh, having, uh, what's that surgery? The I had my appendix. Oh. Right. I had appendicitis and that slowed me down. And then I had something else with, I had something with my, my eye, um, a tendon that moves my eyeball was swollen and wouldn't do that. wouldn't like go down from injections or anything. And that caused me migraines daily and mm. cluster headaches. And that slowed me down. Yeah. Right. And it took me out of that world of drinking and going out and everything and kind of let my brain catch back up to what my age was. Mm. Right. And then that kind of led to when I met my wife and when I met, and then things started to move from there. But it took some physical things happening for, to me for me to take the foot off the gas. Yeah, it took that, that, like, that adversity right. kind of a deal. Yeah. That's interesting. If you were more of a, if you, uh, I know you are, but as a, you know, a philosophical man, do you think that those things were things that were placed in your way purposefully? I think that if I think the eventuality was not going to be good if nothing was placed in my way, mm. right? There was no right looking at looking back on it, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. There was no positive thing that was going to come of the way I was acting, yeah. Right? It was a strictly moment to moment existence of just trying to get as many laughs and ridiculous moments out of life as humanly possible. And it did, but the way you went about it wasn't fiscally responsible, wasn't mm -hmm. responsible to my body, wasn't responsible to the people around me. I felt responsible to myself and myself only. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was all I ever worried about. So. Yeah. Is, uh, it's a tough way to that's a tough way to exist for an extended period of time I, and I, I would say that from 18 to about 30 for me it's, it's a long 12 years of being excessive mm. and 
not going to bed before you go to work in the morning type of stuff. You okay. Know, those, yeah, yeah. Those sorts of things. And But I think one thing that you said, well, and I think one thing you said earlier is important to that, you know, was the, if I hadn't had those experiences early on, I would have them like. I would wonder. I, I know exactly yeah. right. So I have this theory about why people go into a midlife crisis that all that I'll, men especially. Um, so I created, you know, we did this. I did this kind of test of a program that I named Valor, which mm -hmm. was kind of a men's development program. I had just come out of some like a coaching course, and um, it this was kind of the byproduct of that. My theory on why you know uh, guys have these midlife crises is life our lives get sectioned into three parts mm -hmm. they're not necessarily equal but they're three parts nonetheless the first part we spend doing things that we don't necessarily want to do so for example um you know this is all from my experience uh i end up playing the sports because my older brother did it mm -hmm. my parents wanted me to um and not that i didn't love it but it wasn't it wasn't like I wasn't driving doing right. that. I cultivated a love for it, but I wasn't the reason that I ended up playing football, wrestling. And I, I, I started wrestling sophomore year of high school only because my football coach told me I should. Right. And I ended up enjoying wrestling, but I didn't choose. I didn't have any desire to do that. He said, you want to be a better football player? Wrestle. So I started wrestling. So we end up creating over this first section of, our, and then we go to college, right? We go to college because we're told well, you should probably go to school. You need to go to school. If you want that job, if you want to fit into this system very neatly, you need to go to college. Okay, well, I have no idea what I want to do in college. I know I want to continue playing football because that seems like a huge part of my identity right now. Mm -hmm. um, it, it excites me. So I'm, I'm going to do that. Rack up an unreasonable amount of debt going to a private school that's Division three, because they're going to let me continue to play football. Mm -hmm. What I didn't critically think about at the time was, I mean, it's not like they recruited me. It's not like, uh, you know, they, they sought me out. If you want to play division three sports, you need a pulse. Yeah. That's it. They'll take air buddy. So there, I mean, there was 150 people, 150 guys on the Olivet college football team through JV varsity. That's a lot of fucking guys. Yeah, it is. So we stage one, we end up creating this life that we didn't necessarily want to create. This will take us to about, you know, that 20, 18 to 25, okay? Then we get into stage two, where we've got the accumulation of all of these decisions and these choices that we've made. We're not super excited about the path that we're headed down, but we decide, okay, I'm going to try to convince myself that this really is what I wanted. We spend the next 20 years trying to convince ourselves that, all of the things that we did before were worth it. We were in the driver's seat of our own lives. We wanted to do all of these things. And then we start to make the decisions that tell us we did the right thing. Air quotes, right thing, right? right? We get the, you get the car that you can't necessarily afford. You over uh, leverage yourself to get the house. You end up with the wife that, um, you know, everything's hot and awesome in the beginning. And then you guys don't really cultivate that deep, meaningful relationship in the way that maybe you should. End up with kids because you're supposed to have the 2.5 kids. And you just continue to make all of these decisions 
to tell yourself that the first quarter of my life was worth it. I did the right things. And then you hit this point somewhere around 50, 55, where you wake up one morning, you realize that you hate your job, your kids are fucking assholes, you're, you, do, you haven't had a meaningful conversation with your wife in 20 years, and you drop a nuke on your life. You do this in one of two ways. You either um, buy that car that you definitely can't afford, you know, this is the Corvettes, things like that, on the $40,000 a year, $50,000 a year. You start flirting with your secretary or the girl at work and you end up stepping out on your wife. And then um, that whole thing you created before, you make one decision or accumulation of decisions that entirely flips everything that you've done leading up to this point. Because you feel like you haven't been able to live the life that you wanted. You didn't feel like you were in the driver's seat of your life. Or option number two is that you wake up that morning and your eyes glaze over and you just accept that this is what it is and you spend the next 25 years just waiting to die. It's not, it's not exactly, it is, it's, it's very similar to what I think of when it comes for people who, like, when you see those abrupt changes and abrupt decisions to their lives, right? Of, like you said, they, they, they followed the plan, mm-hmm. right? Whatever that plan is that they, they, they thought they should do, they followed it step by step. Yep. And then realized at some point that there is more. Yeah. Right? And this more for them is not something they can necessarily grasp onto in the plan that they've already developed. Mm. Right? Which is why at this point, right, that for, for myself personally, I played baseball, right, in college. Now, baseball was a big part of what I did. It was something that I had always wanted, right? But I tore a ligament in my elbow, had Tommy John surgery. And I remember walking into my advisor's office the week after that happened and being like, what's my major? Mm. Right? I had no clue yep. like what I was doing at school. I just was going through the classes that were presented to me, right? But realizing that my career in baseball was relatively over at that point. She goes, well, you have the most credits in psych. Mm. Let's do that. <laughs> right? That was how I chose what I did. Yeah. Without any intention of doing it because I've never personally had an aha moment of been like, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Right? It's not like people have that sort of they see it and they know it and they go. I've never had that. Yeah. And uh, so I finished out my degree, and then I went, I, I went home for a little bit. Like did some menial jobs of like retail and things like that. Didn't really know what to do. Now this is where like me having a supportive family came into play because my mother just told me she goes, "Why don't you just you talk to those friends in Colorado? Why don't you just go?" 
Okay. And it wasn't, wasn't a month later that I was gone. That's sweet. So I left and went out to Colorado. I worked because I had a college degree. They let me work indoors, which was huge because <laughs> working outside would have been awful. Um, and then at night I bounced at a bar and I bartended too. Right. It was nothing to do with my degree for a few years. Mm. Right. And nothing to do with what I understood about anything. And not that I would have remembered anything considering what the way I was in college. Now, I, and then that led to me living a few places and then finally moving to Detroit. I took a job at a sales company thinking that I would be all right with sales. I wasn't. Yeah. I was terrible at sales. I can't. You say no. I'm like, yeah, I guess he doesn't want it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's just, I'm not, I don't, I'm not one to push too hard, especially for things that you're not passionate about. Yeah. Did you have like a script and stuff that you oh, were yeah, to follow? Did, oh yeah. Well, and they did a lot of training and a lot of their training was really good. It was really like they, it was, and I watched it work for people who knew what they were doing. I've watched it work yeah. for them. I'm like, this is kind of insane Yeah, that you have this down this well. Yes. So, but the guy who I, uh, my uh, lead there, his mom was a, unit, she was the unit chief at the psych on a psych unit at uh, uh, Michigan Department of Corrections, a prison mm-hmm. near there. And I had told him after a few weeks being there, and him and I had went out for drinks and hung out and whatever. I said, dude, this ain't, this ain't what I want to do. He goes, I know. Yeah. And he knew. He goes, I, he goes, I don't take it personally. He goes, you want me to talk to my mom? I'm like, yeah, why not, man? I have a psych degree. Let's figure this out. Yeah. So I got a case management position in psych there. Um, and then have proceeded to just kind of go one job to another until I, um, uh, found a supervisor who gave me a master's level education during our supervision time. Mm. Now, what I mean by that is that once a week, if you work in mental health, you should have supervision, right? Like meaningful supervision where you go over your caseload, your supervisor is managing you in a way that they understand how much stress you're under, right? How much secondary trauma you're experiencing from other people, Mm. right? And whether you're on the verge of burnout or losing your shit. Yeah. Right. That's, and if you're okay, then it's about education and moving you forward. And she took the three years that I spent there and gave me an education that as I'm going through my master's program right now, I'm like, I know that. Yeah. I know that I can do that. Right. And it's, it's, it's been great because it's made the master's program less stressful, but it, 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 that was like one of the important parts of me was finding somebody that took an interest mm. other than just getting done what you're supposed to get done. Yeah. So all of those things, going back to the potential for midlife crisis, having experienced a lot of that life without any restriction, right, led to very real understanding that like yeah i could have a kid right now and be okay with it yeah right i'm at a spot right now where i'm genuinely all right with where i'm at and don't feel like i need to go out and have a beer every night with my buddies right 
or whatever. And then we still get together with friends, not as much as used to. COVID doesn't help with all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? But we still get together. Well, all of that sounds very... All of that sounds very reasonable. Yeah. The unreasonable part is following the script, I think. Yeah. And not listening to what your mind's telling you. Mm. Like you're allowed to take what you did for the first 22 years of your life and say, fuck it. You are. Yeah. That, that's, that's okay. Yeah, that's important. Right. But for most people, and not most, maybe not most people, for some people, it's about being, do you have the support in your life to be able to do that? Because mm. doing that on an individual basis is daunting. Mm. Right. My, my parents were people that were always preparing me to be an adult, not to be somebody who hung on. Mm. Right. And then when I decided to do something, are you sure? Yep. All right. Right. We're here. Right. They're always here. That's interesting. Right. So I tell you, I tell you that story because I got kicked out of my first school for using drugs. Right. I remember calling my mom. I wasn't calling my dad at that point. I had to have my mom talk to my dad first. Before yeah, I right. To my dad. Right. Yeah. Be the buffer. <laughs> be the buffer. And she was. She's a great buffer for me. But I remember her asking me, are you coming home? Because the first time I realized that I had an option, mm. right? And that it was still there, not come home now. Right. Right, which made me, and then my response, can I? Well, yeah, we would like you to come home, but you got to decide what you're going to do. Oh, shit. This is way more than I expected, right? You kind of see the gravity of your decision at that moment. Like, no, you're 19 years old. I can't make you come home. Right. Yeah. I'd like to come home. I'd like you to come home so we can get this figured out. Mm. And you did go home? I did. Yeah. I did. It wasn't fun. Right? It wasn't bad, but it was just the whole... I had so much success in high school and baseball that led to a full-ride scholarship that I took a dump on mm. by the choices I was making. So... And it didn't work out. And that was, so that, would you say that that was your first real experience? I mean, everybody goes through those micro doses of, you know, adversity. Like you lose the game, the shit doesn't work out, you fail the test. Was this the first real time that you were slapped in the face with? Shit ain't going to work out the way that you want it to work out. I would say so, because I was so used to winning, Mm. right? And willing myself to win in some capacity, Mm. right? You learn how to do that. You know that. Like, you learn how to make it work, right? And this is the first time I had somebody looking at me. I'm like, yeah, you can't be here. And there's nothing you can say. Yeah. Right? So. I think that's a critical, that's a pivotal moment in someone's life. And that's, that's the, that's the, like, the fork in the road. Mm -hmm. One of many, right? But it, it creates this decision tree. Like, okay, I can go this way. And this will be all of the potential outcomes. Or we go this way. And these are all of the potential outcomes. Right. And you think about it, I could have stayed there and lived with friends that, and continued. Right. And who knows? Exactly. And who knows what I've got. I, I think about that and I'm like, ooh. Yeah. Oof, <laughs> what? Because I went back and still struggled uh-huh. for a while until... I think about 25, 24, 25 is when I stopped, I would say stopped using drugs and started just drinking. Mm. 
right? Because I was into a career now. So now I just drink. It's okay. Yeah, that's normal. It's normalized. Right. But then the amount I was drinking and the, the amount and frequency that I was drinking was not normal. Yeah. So my dad even made a comment to me. He goes, every picture I see with you, you're double fisting. I'm like, yeah, because I'm an adult, dad. Yeah. Right. But that was the response that he was looking for. Yeah. Right. But in all of that, I never had them come at me real strong of like, you need to, hey. And it was always like, hey, think about it. Yeah. Like you're, it's leading you somewhere. You know, it was always subtle hints. Mm. Right. Because you know this growing up, and especially when you think you know what you're doing, right? Try and tell me what to do, please. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't know if I ever got that. I don't know if I ever got the the come to Jesus moment kind of talks. It was all just it was all in my early my early twenties, similar to yours. I I didn't play so much with the drugs in the early twenties. It was more just far too much alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um and each time I was arrested, it was or got a ticket or or whatever, it was it was kind of like we didn't talk about it, mm-hmm. you know? It wasn't like we, there was thoughtful discussion afterwards about why did this happen? What were you doing? Like, here's the here's the path that you're on and mm-hmm. here's where it ends up if you don't, you know, consider making a different choice. It was just like, that was stupid. You know that, right? Yes, I do. Okay, we move on. Mm-hmm. And that worked in the moment, but I don't think that it served me very well long-term I think that the last time that I got arrested was my, the fourth time was my come to Jesus moment. And that happened a lot more internally than externally. It was the realization that I'm at the, I'm at that fork in the road. There's one of two potential outcomes here. If I continue doing this and I continue living this sort of life, I'm going to, I'm going to end up in jail. Right. Like for a reasonable amount and not just like overnights, but like real jail, like prison. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's uh, some of the things that we talked about with my parents now, right? That we've had those conversations. Like after my fr- so I, I was I was kicked out of school in my third semester, so first semester sophomore year, and they told me just recently we were t- talking about stuff, and they came up. They go, "We knew that you going back to school there your sophomore year, you weren't going to make it the whole year." Mm. Because we knew that they, my, my dad and my mom both told me, we knew you weren't going to make it through after that summer that you had. And that summer that I had was excessive mm. at 19. Like, why? <laughs> I don't know. Like, it just could not be stopped. Yeah. So. it was You were unreasonable. Yeah, completely unreasonable and not open to any instruction or anything. And my level of stubbornness rivals rivals my father's which my mother knows and is much to her chagrin so <laughs> it is just please try and tell me how i'm not doing what i'm supposed to and watch me do it more right just yeah like why does that make why did that make sense at that time i don't know right it seemed right. like a good idea at the time yeah so but you know what? It didn't make sense. Is that what you want to hear? It didn't. It totally didn't make sense. But I think it comes back to one of the things that I, when I first started this first psych job I had in the prison, right? I was, I was doing case management and some rec stuff there. And I told 
one of the psychiatrists and make me, I don't think I know what I'm doing here. I've been out of school for, you know, a few years and I didn't pay much attention when I was in. Mm. Right. He goes, well, I go, what am I supposed to do with psych stuff here? He goes, listen, you can learn psych stuff. He goes, you can't learn the experiences that you got to have. Mm. He goes, listen, let me put it to you like this. He goes, would you, as a person, if you were going into therapy or case management, would you rather listen to the guy who sat in the front row, did all the work, kissed the teacher's ass, was on time, stayed late, did all his papers, did all his homework, got A's on everything, right, and knows all the stuff? Or would you rather talk to the guy who sat in the back of the class, probably left a little bit early, didn't maybe show up on time, but understands a little bit what he's talking about and a lot about life? I'm like, I think I understand what you're saying here now. Yeah. Yep, I don't want to talk to Johnny Know-It-All. Yeah. Right? Because he doesn't understand. Like, there's no way for him to have a perspective about what I'm actually working with. That's so. that's an important word, that perspective, right? The mm-hmm. seat, the, the, the position or the seat from which you're viewing the experiences of other people in, in context to your own. Yeah. And that's one thing of higher education. So secondary education, I see a ton of value in going to college for the life experience part. Very similar to you. I didn't, I didn't fucking go. I didn't have a major when I was going, I I think when I was at Olivet, I majored in insurance and risk management. Because they were the second in the country behind Temple University, right? For that, and then I went to you know same deal, three different schools, and then I you know I left, went to Oklahoma. I was like, ah, I might not go back to college. Who knows? Came back, went to KCC, started enjoying marketing classes, those sorts of things. Went into business, went to Western, um, you know, the Hayworth College of Business, and I was going to go for advertising and promotion. I spent five years in college. I don't have a degree but I got a ton of the experience mm-hmm. and I was able to meet people, see people. I was able to make a lot of fucking mistakes, yeah. do a lot of stupid shit, have a lot of fun, Yeah, had a lot of fun. And I wouldn't trade that. I might, you know, I might choose not to have $60,000 in student loans that, right. but I wouldn't, I think that I, I would not trade that level of experience to stay in this town or my hometown, any hometown and not experience people from different cultures, different, uh, have different um, life experiences, even, you know, even fucking a, a school like Olivet. There's 1,200 people and it's a liberal arts college. I mean, D3, you're getting very left, very, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the cur- I always find it very interesting. The curriculum in liberal arts colleges doesn't match up with state universities. Like they have classes that don't exist. And that's why you can't transfer the credits. Yes, I lost an entire, almost an entire year mm-hmm. because freshman year was all of these classes that don't exist at a state university. So they lock you in the going for all four years. Oh too. yeah, and it's really expensive. But I was, but through that, I was able, you know, to meet a lot of people from different parts of Michigan. I think in the MIAA, which was the conference that Olivet was in. We had the largest black population mm-hmm. of any school. So, I mean, my freshman year, I, I, I planned on pledging a historically black fraternity. Right. I did not, like I wasn't able to because I only got 10 credits my first semester. I was supposed to have 12 to be full time. I only got 10 because I failed a class that I never showed up to. Right. 
that was that happened a lot but <laughs> yeah i understand <laughs> but you know i don't what i don't see from people who never left or got out they don't have those those different experiences and they just they talk from a place that you can tell they've just been in some sort of weird echo chamber mm-hmm. for the majority of their life they're surrounded by people who believe the same things that they believe they uh, you know they have these very interesting opinions on uh, world affairs or political affairs or race religion politics yeah, which seem to work where they live but not anywhere else 100 percent yeah so they've never had to and this was one of the things that I talked with you about before like I love the way that scholars have to defend their arguments mm-hmm. you have to be able to come up you have to speak, thoughtfully and critically, and you have to be able to present a better argument than your opposition, or you have to, or you're supposed to let your position go. Scholars don't get to say, well, I, I feel like this is true. Right, which is why those papers that I have to write every single time, and they have to have peer, they have to be peer reviewed, mm. right? And be scholarly articles of that are reviewed by their peers, Yes, that is correct. Yes, that makes sense. Yes, this study was done ethically and mm. done the way it was supposed to be done, right? And if it's not, it doesn't get promoted to that level, mm. right? Then you're just a person right? So, that wrote a paper. So my question now with the peer-reviewed thing, I heard this this statistic um, that you know in the 1990s. So you're talking, you're looking at liberal versus conservative professors. Mm-hmm. Right. And somewhere in the 1990s across the the social sciences seemed to be the big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were the ratio was something like four to one. Right. Liberal versus conservative. Mm-hmm. Now it's upwards of 20 to one. I would imagine so. Yeah. Academia doesn't lend itself to being conservative. Right. And I think they have to call it if you're going to if it's going to be open to it, it's almost going to be called a different name at this point. Right? Mm-hmm. Because being conservative in that area. It seems to work in economics still, and that's about it. Right, right, right. But like anything else, like it it, it harkens back to what we were just talking to about the experience of being in college. You're growing, you're being open, you're being liberal in a way of just being open to experiencing new and different things. Yes. And the idea of being conservative and retreated, right, is... Why would you do that? We're here to do this. So right? my question on the peer-reviewed thing is, is this is the system creating its own version of the echo chamber? Because the peers, the people who are also reviewing these papers, in most cases, at least with the highest level of frequency, share the same ideologies or views or beliefs. Well, I would, I would, I would, I would venture off to say I would hope not, right? And the reason I would say that is, when I'm talking, when I'm thinking about peer-reviewed articles, right, and peer-reviewed things, those are pertaining to studies, mm-hmm. right? Studies have a framework, mm-hmm. right, an accepted framework by the scientific community. Of this is how you do this. This is how you get results. This is how you don't manipulate it, mm. right? And this is if you do do that, then you don't get the accreditation that it's that you would hope and then you've wasted your money Mm. right and so that's what it comes down to is that you hope that whoever is reviewing these 
is reviewing it from a lens not of an idea uh, like a, a liberal conservative lens but of a scientific one did they follow mm. the framework of how this is supposed to be done to get right the, you're hoping that they're looking at it objectively yeah and that would be the hope right because new information drives new research and new research drives new ways of doing things and if it's a new way of doing things that's more effective than the old way why the fuck not would we do it that way yeah right that's the hope right i get the hope i just i've yeah. i have a more of a pessimistic view it's a cynical end of things and don't worry i'm there with you too right yeah it's, it's hard to because what's one of the first things that you do when you when i when i read an article who funded it yeah right 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 who accredited it right who reviewed it right? what sort of biases did they have did you ever hear about the uh the the one one of the papers that got published um this was in a book this was in a couple of books it was called uh, the the penis as a social construct i don't think so oh this was this was actually a satirical article that these guys wrote. I now I know what you're talking about the satire part, and then people started quoting and. Well, what happened? It, it ended up getting published. <laughs> yeah. It ended up getting published in one of these peer-reviewed journals, and then they came out and said, "We did this to see if we could pull this off," mm -hmm. and then everybody went after them. Like yeah. all the people who supported it, they ended up being like, "Yes, 100 percent." The, the penis is not a real thing. It's just, it's, it's not a gender. It's a social construct. Then they went, they got, they got furious at the guys who wrote the paper right. rather than look at their system or their, like, mm -hmm. how the fuck did it get here? They're like, you know what? You manipulated the system. You did all these bad things. Yeah. Now, what do you do to change it? Not nothing. And I don't know that to be true. Right. But it's, I would imagine that because that would go back to what we were talking about earlier, that change away from something that's familiar, even though it's not as effective as it could be, is difficult. Mm. So how do you, I guess. Well, it's people who start identifying with what they're doing rather than uh, like focusing on being the best at what they do. Mm. Right. They identify with the way they've done something as being important and valued and anything and then that stifles innovation and then somebody comes along along and shakes that tree a little bit right oh no <laughs> yeah. oh no this is who i am how do i how do i adjust like no you just do it and that's easy for me to say i guess but well i agree i think that investment does not determine value what right? do you mean Maybe the second word isn't the right one, but the amount of time you invest in something does that determine whether it's correct or not? Yeah, I agree. There, I, there, I think, that's a better way. To I say think it. value was good so, if you if you describe what value is. Right, but it doesn't determine whether you're correct or not. The amount of time that you give to something does not determine whether or not it's right or wrong. I think that's an important statement. So, right, it just means the amount of time that you did. It's its own thing, right? The results. Right, are what they are, regardless of the amount of time that you gave it. Yeah, just because you've spent forty years crafting this belief in how the system should be or how the world outside of you operates, doesn't mean that it's correct. Right. Well, and it's if you if you simplify it, even you go to exercise like the, the your 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 wheelhouse, right? If you get somebody who only rows, right, or only rides bike, 
right? I rode bike for 30 minutes a day for the last 20 weeks. Why am I not seeing progress, mm. right? I've invested all of this time. I don't have the results. It's not my fault. Well, maybe that you should have invested your time in changing it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Your body gets used to things, right? Same as the mind. Yeah. Maybe right? it gets used to the pathways that it's on, right? Without changing it up or being willing to change it up. Well, it's the neurons that fire together, wire together, right? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So makes change very difficult, right? So ugh, it is, it is hard. And I think it's the problem with trying to get people to change their mind rather than having meaningful discussion like you and I are talking about here. Yeah. Meaningful discussion versus debate. They're two different things. Mm, that's important. Yeah. Right? I'm not trying to argue. I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying to see if what I have to say stands up. Right? And if it doesn't, grit my teeth and Ugh. you gotta be you gotta be willing to examine then yeah all right what parts of what parts of my current belief structure mm -hmm. are incorrect mm -hmm. well and i god and i did this uh, leading up to this after we talked last weekend and then, then leading up to this week i made it a more of a point to myself when listening to things not to change the channel when i felt like it was dumb mm. Right. And I did it a couple of times because I listened to a specific radio program in the morning and something they had a guest on that was ultra loyalist Trump thing. Right. right? Which do your thing. I just don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. But does that benefit me? any? No. So I switched the channel and then I was there for about five seconds. I was like, Fuck. <laughs> I switched it back. I'm like, okay, this is exactly what we were talking about. Yeah, right. And I switched it back and I choked it down. And I, yeah. And, but continuing to do those things to hear at least, because if people don't feel like they're heard, they're never going to listen. Sure. So there's, I think that there is definitely value in exposing yourself to contrary opinions and moat. I argue that most people are unwilling to do that. Especially, it seems like especially the older that you get, yeah. the more just like uh, fortified your opinions and your beliefs become. Well, that, that, I've had this conversation with my father, right? Who is 61, 61 now, I think. 60 or 61. And he doesn't say this to me anymore, but... Because I am the way I am. Mm. Oh, are you? Well, then the way you are is an asshole, <laughs> right? Like you can't, like just that's not an argument for for something to be okay. Yeah. Right. If you are the way you are, then you are an asshole, right? That's okay. If you're okay with being an asshole, then that's fine. Right. But it's just the fact that you're sixty does not make you incapable of changing. It just makes it more difficult. Mm. right but your willingness to understand things and do things and be open to things is going to be critical to you understanding your grandchildren mm. yeah and those conversations have been had yeah so because they're going to have a wildly different perspective and view of the world than you do 
Mm-hmm. And you being able to connect with them in a meaningful way is going to be you being open to doing things and experience things and listening to things that you were not okay with. Yeah. That's interesting. I see a lot. I see many people would rather than that, right? Just would rather sit and only see experience the things that they are comfortable with. Well, and that's when you see people blaming it on that, blaming it on, well, he hasn't been over and such and such time. Well, there's probably a reason for that. Mm. Right, and it's that adage of, right, you bump into somebody, they're an asshole. That guy's the asshole. You bump, if you meet assholes all day long, you're probably the <laughs> asshole, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, like, it's just, and I try and take perspective from my father of understanding his life and where he came from, and it was not, to put it delicately, is not an easy way to way he had to grow, mm. and to his never any credit i watched him i I saw the way we were as as kids and the way he is now that is a softening of an individual as as uh and using softening in a an endearing term Mm -hmm. right of being able to say things even to me that i never thought that i would hear him say right like yeah i'm not sure i did that right when you were like it's Mm. when he's thinking about sometime when i was 12 i'm like as much as you know, I don't think about that. Yeah. Like, nor do I think about that as a, a formative thing for me in my life. Mm. Right. I, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but just know that it's not a experience that I think about where you did this and this is how I feel the rest of my life. No. Mm. So, but he's starting to think about those things a little bit more, which lets me know that if my stubborn ass father, who's worked in the same factory for 40 years, can start to think differently. Most anybody's capable of that. Yeah. So it takes that willingness, right? Right. What do you think that 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 where do you think was there a shift? Was there a moment? Was it just the the accumulation of life? I think there's an accumulation of life. I think my mother's an incredible person too for him to be around, right? That she is very practical and pragmatic, Mm. right? But doesn't, like it's, she's the type of person you give it, like when she calls, I already know she's correct and it bothers me because I like to be right Mm. as a person, but I choke it down because it's my mom. And I know she's already thought about it, right? She's very practical the way she thinks about things and the way she presents things to him, I imagine is there, but I've never seen it because they don't do that in front of people, which I've always appreciated. Yeah. Right. Especially the conversation I had to have her have with him when I was coming home. Right. Like, how are we going to do this? Cause he's going to be mad and I would be mad too, but I don't right now I'm pretty mad at myself. So I don't need anybody else to be like super mad at me, please. Right. Right. When I was getting in trouble. Yeah. So, and you could tell he was eating it as he was talking to me that first conversation when I got home and it got better from there. But it wasn't it wasn't anger, it's disappointment, right? Yeah. But no, I think him and my mother's relationship kind of level him out quite a bit to where I have a feeling it goes like this. You may feel that way, but they don't care. Mm. right you're gonna have to decide whether you're okay with making some concessions or not 
Yeah. And if you're not, expect them to fight you about it. Got it. Right? Like, and that's, and then, and then she leaves it. She doesn't harp or anything. It's just, that's what it is. Right? So you decide whether you can deal with it or not. If you can't, I'll go over there by myself. Yeah. My mother doesn't need him to go with her for, right? So, and it happened three weeks ago. My father and I had a swearing contest at each other at a high school football game. Yeah. In front of people. Solid. Here in Coldwater, too. Yeah. Mr. just played Coldwater. But I think it was one of those things where we didn't need to talk about it afterwards. We both know we were being ridiculous. Mm. And my mother goes, and then remember, she called me the next day and we were talking about something else. If we were coming over, she goes, there will be no fighting and figure it out. Yeah. And that's where she left it. I'm like, God, is this what it's like for dad? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think him having her kind of helps uh, him move forward with things that he wouldn't normally have moved forward with. And also, I think it is the accumulation of age, seeing your own mortality kind of come creeping up on you, living longer than your father and your sister already. Mm-hmm. Right. Who both, dad, I think his dad passed away at 55. His sister was 58. Mm. Right. He's 61. Right. So, seeing those things, a lot of people have died young in his family. So, having that kind of stare you in the face and then. I think grandchildren really kind of changed some perspective for him too. Mm. So I think that confrontation with death and mortality forces you to change your perspective on things. Yeah, it forces you to think that, I mean, it, it kind of narrows what's important. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he had this summer, uh, I don't, they don't think they defined it as a stroke. Right, but it wasn't. Uh, he had a moment where he had to go to the hospital, and there was some things with his leg and other things. And he was foggy for, for a little bit afterwards, but he's recovered now. But it, it kind of jolts you right back into like, okay, what's important here? Mm. Right? Are you know? Yeah, and like, and then for him, it hurt, and it goes back to family. You know, at this yeah. point. I think it goes back, like I had the conversation with my grandmother before she passed away. I took her out to lunch and I said, I said, you're, you're, you're 80. What's, uh, what's been your favorite part? Ooh, that's a good question. And I said, what's been your favorite part? It's just her and I. Right. And she goes, well, she goes, you'd be very surprised when my grandchildren are my favorite part. Huh. And then to her credit, she goes, and under her breath, Enough for me to be able to hear. And she goes, what? Like some great grandchildren. This is before <laughs> I had kids. Yeah. So it was, but I think, you know, and I, and I think I get that too. Like you're raising your children, right? Like you're raising them. You're, you're trying your best to lead them down a path that's going to help them be successful and, and realistically, you know, just make it. Right, and that's stressful, mm-hmm. right, as a parent. But as a grandparent, like I watched my dad take my nephew out of school multiple times to go to Tigers games, and I was like, "Hey, yeah, where was this <laughs> when I was when I was a child?" 
But then, like, no, he gets to do that now because he's grandpa. Yep. So those things are, right? So that, that kind of joy is more important than being right or being. It's kind of like enjoying the fruits of your labor, yeah. right? You developed this. You spent all this time, effort, and energy. De- this is my perception. Obviously, I have no right. context for it. But you spend all this time, effort, energy developing this other human being to be functional and to do well. And then you get to see, okay, how do they do the same thing? Mm-hmm. And you take some level of pride in that. Yeah. Right? Because that's a byproduct of the lessons, the education, the life, the 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 ass whoopings, the the hugs, the all of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's just have you risen up and I think for him it's one of those things, have you his one of his main things is like please if you can help it, don't work in a factory, mm. right? That was one of his big things to me growing up. He goes, you'll hate it. Yeah. So even though college wasn't super important to me, having the degree was like one of those things in the back of your mind. Can you? Like, like this is what's going to separate if you do ever decide to use it. Yeah, right. So, and that he's... 40 years in the same cement, like not cement factory, but standing on the same cement. Yeah. Right. That's two new knees, a new shoulder, another new shoulder on the way, injections in your back every couple months. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, that life is. So it's, uh, yeah, being able to rise above the previous station of your, of your parents. Right. And, like I was the first one with a four-year degree. My sister right after me. My brother works in a factory, but he um, he's gonna end up. He is some sort of not management, but he's a, a lead that'll lead to this, that'll lead to that. I think he understands what he's doing and why he's good at it. Mm. Right? There's no reason for him to go. He tried college, wasn't for him. Yeah. My hats off to you, buddy. They <laughs> tried it twice too. So nah, never mind. Yeah, it's so, not for everybody. No, and it's not. A, and he's a trade person. If he would have gone to a trade school, I'm sure he would have done great. Yeah, right. General college of showing up and writing papers and doing those thought exercises and busy work. Well, and he's just it's just not his style. Yeah, right. So there's something there's something interesting there about that whole uh, just doing better than my parents. Mm-hmm. That was my story. Um, you know, for a long, I just need to make more money than my parents did because mm-hmm. I saw the life that we were able to live. I mean, we didn't like nobody drove, drove Ferraris, but right. you had you had food, you had a house, you had clothes, those sorts of things. And I had the I don't know if it was the benefit or not of knowing how much money my parents were making. Mm-hmm. My mom worked in a factory for 25 years making hot dogs. Mm-hmm. My dad sold furniture. I knew that. 65 hour weeks most of the year led to a little bit over $40,000 for my mom. And my dad worked six days a week regardless and made like 35 grand. So my story coming up was I just need to make more money than my parents. And at when $41,000 is the ceiling, that's very easy. Right. Can be, yeah. I mean, if you're going to, if you're willing to go to that factory, you're willing right. to. I mean, it, it was. It was too easy to do that. And it was like the, the goal post was too low. But I get the, like, I need to be able to do better than them. And I never, nobody ever had the conversation with me about, 
hey, you need to go to college, you need to get this, mm -hmm. and this is why it's important. It was always very blue collar, very much like, hey, you just need to make sure that you can provide, like, we're not gonna take care of you. I think this is one of the things that I, I never had an understanding of how much money my parents made, mm. not until recently, right? And never really gathered and they wouldn't ever share. Right? Mm. They were, it wasn't a thing that they shared. That's not something you need to worry about. It's yeah. always the response that I got. Like, All right, well, shit. Yeah. And so. I was a detective. I was sleuth. I sleuthed it out. I you? found tax receipts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I found how much they made. I, I got their taxes. Nothing was ever shared willingly. Well, and I think I think that would have been the problem. Like I told you about my mother, if I would have looked through stuff, she would have known somebody looked through it. Oh, yeah. That's that's because it was very, it was organized. Yep. I was in a cabinet. And like, who the fuck's been in here? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that she wouldn't have swore. She doesn't swear. Okay. Except when it's necessary. She told me once in high school, this is bullshit and I'll never forget it. Yeah. Right. Because it's one of the few times I've heard her swear. Right. And I think I had done something. And then on top of that, I was doing bad in this class. And mm. on top of that, something else. And just this is I'm listening. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> what did I do? So uh, I think the the standard of getting a like improving upon, you know, where we were, right? Where my family, like uh, the upon where my parents had been, now improving upon that was more of a theoretical type of thing. I didn't really know what, how I was going to do that, mm. but it usually it, for me it meant not doing piece rate stuff, yep. you know, that's not of really what I, yeah. that's really kind of how, it, I mean, my, my mom's worked in the same office for close to 40 years too. So, but, uh, and she doesn't, she's never, and she started as a secretary and now she's something I don't know anymore. It's a German based company that makes things that I don't understand. Okay. So they, as, uh, as, as you can see, like do. their work life never, Never intersected. Not very often. No. Not very often. It wasn't talked. My dad didn't want my dad didn't want to talk about work. He didn't like being at work. Yeah. But it meant food. Yep. Right. That's no that's all Same. you need to know is that it meant food. Yeah. So but those sorts of things, right? Seeing hard work, consistent work, right? And then having the people be supportive of whatever I chose to do. Right. And then still be supportive that even when I wasn't successful or made significant mistakes, right, of knowing that I had a safety net to risk, mm. to be able to risk, was huge for me. Right. And still is. Right. I know that no matter what I try to do, even if it ends up not working out, that I'm not, like, we're not camping in the woods somewhere yeah right i know that so it gives you permission to risk mm. right. i think that's a great ending for mm. the very first session right about an hour and 20 that works not bad for the first chat no and yeah. i don't know like we talked about i'm not sure how this all this whole thing plays out this is very much the introductory episode you know the whole i think the whole idea behind unreasonable is 
having better discussions. Right. Well, and I think this one will go as far to not only having better discussions, but being willing to listen to where people came from. Mm-hmm. Right. You and I have known each other, right? But the details of where and how it's been shaped as we come to human, as we've came to be the humans that we are, is unknown. Mm-hmm. Right. So understanding that, right? We talked about at the beginning, our timeline our past defines and kind of dictates what our behavior is. Mm-hmm. So now if I see you do something, like if you do something, I'm like, oh, I get that. And that's where that comes from. Yeah. And that goes back to what we talked about. Right. So even though this, you don't, we didn't, you don't get into like super political discussions today or the whatever doesn't mean that they can't happen. What this means is that we know where people, where we're coming from. Yeah. Right. Well, in that basic level of understanding, right. Even that is necessary to have, Mm-hmm. reasonable discussion right like it's it's context it's empathy it's understanding it's this is this is in my one of my opinions this is one of the things that most people are missing now right. you don't have to have these face-to-face discussions you don't you don't get to understand okay this is this person's story or this is mm-hmm. these are the pieces and parts of it what you can do is you can sit behind a keyboard and you can do it in 140 characters or less or you make a 30 second video and you you see these micro pieces, these very small pieces of people's life as it sits right now, and you create an entire story and a judgment based on that. Yeah, without ever asking the reason or why. Why did you do that? Exactly. Why is why is that the thought in your head? Yeah. Right. Why? Because I don't understand it. It doesn't fit with mine. It doesn't mean you're wrong. But why? Yeah. Right. In the context of the gym. Um, I've, I've had that happen with a few people and they're some of my oldest clients, my, my favorite people to work with Mm -hmm. have always asked me that sort of a question. Like, why'd you do this? Or I don't agree with this. Well, you know, would be something that they would say. And then we'd have a reasonable discussion about it. Mm -hmm. My least favorite people make judgments on decisions that I do without asking any questions. This is what I think you should do. Yes. That that statement right there is an automatic, I'm just going to clench. Yep. And we'll get through this moment. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe we will. <laughs> or maybe I'll tell you to go fuck yourself. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, uh, the specific example, you know, we're looking at the last eight months in the world. Shit's nuts. Like things are much different than they were before. What we did, we did something. Um, oh, well, there was the, the big George Floyd incident. Yeah. Yes. So we had a workout that was, it was, it ended up, they created a hero workout. A hero workout is, you know, you do it in remembrance. Right. right. We it's did like, like Murph. Yes. Like Murph. Right. So there were, um, we did a hero, like a Saturday, we did, um, a workout called Floyd, big mm-hmm. Floyd. And we weren't, we didn't hide it. We didn't, we weren't shy about it. And I, I don't have any, like knowledge of this. So this is going to be slightly projected opinion-based statement. But after that, I had a few people who I hadn't seen through the whole, you know, we were doing workouts outside. They hadn't come in yet, those sorts of things. And they ended up, you know, um, canceling, like cancel their membership or cancel their affiliation with the gym. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, after time, draw these 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 webs 
Um, okay, did they do that because we did this? And I'm led to believe, yes, based on a conversation that I had with somebody who is still a member, who is the person who's willing to have these conversations with me, but he's very conservative, mm -hmm. which Coldwater is a, is a conservative community. Yeah. So we did this and he's like, hey, I don't agree with what you're doing. I'm not like, I'm not leaving, obviously, but I won't be here on Saturday because I don't agree with it. And we were able to have a thoughtful discussion as to why we made the decision that we were doing uh, to, to do this. Mm -hmm. It was, he's like, I don't think that, you know, this guy, this, this person should be put on the same pedestal of a workout as somebody like Michael Murphy. Right. And I told him the, I heard Dave Chappelle say this and I stole it from him. Yeah. Dave, Cha Dave Chappelle did a, some, I think it was 946. Yeah, listen to that. Yes. So he's like, we didn't choose George Floyd. You chose him for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I don't disagree with that at all. And if I, I would recommend for people to follow anything Dave Chappelle says. Oh, for that, sure. That guy is in, there is, there is a prime for his comedic career, and then there is a prime for the way he thinks is different in the way he's able to, contextualize things and it makes sense and it works for him he's not trying to work it out for everybody it works for him and he's just presenting it because he has a platform yes right but it is there is a there is a there's a person who right now is killing it in what they're saying yeah and how they're saying it and how they're pre presenting because so yellow springs where he lives yep went there a lot in college. Did you? It's 20 minutes from where I went to school. Okay. Right? Southwest Ohio. Yep. As you can imagine is what it is. Well, I watched his, uh, he did, he just did um, on Netflix, David yep. Letterman have the yeah, show, I've My watched, Next Guest. Yep. So I watched that too. Okay. Right? And that coffee shop, those places that they've all been there. Now imagine a place in Southwest Ohio that is so far left. Yeah. That it just stands out into a place unto itself. Like it's just... It's a, it, for lack of a better, it's a hippie town. Yeah. Right? It's values are to people and to nature. And like they have, like the telephone poles have like knitted sweaters on them. Mm. Like it's just like a very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and for being a college student who smoked a lot of weed, like it was perfect <laughs> for me. Right? Like, yeah, this yeah. is the place I want to be. Yep. Right, and it's right next to a state park. I've been by that waterfall, the Yellow Springs, and everything. I've been through it. Like it's just, yeah. So it's just a unique place in a red state. Mm -hmm. So, and well, to to finish, I guess to circle and finish the thought was the reason that we made the decision to do something like mm -hmm. that is we try. I try to make decisions based in values. Mm -hmm rather than ideologies or you know the whole black lives matter thing i could i could give a shit whether the um the the people behind the movement are corrupt or like black lives matter as an institution has ulterior motives right the statement doesn't take away from anyone else right it's a value on life but there's this this whole thing popped up at well all lives matter 
really like Michael Che talks about this mm -hmm. in his one of his stamps. He's like semantics. Really, we're going to argue on semantics. Yeah, that's like that's like your wife coming up to you and going, "Honey, I love you. Do you love me?" Baby, I love everybody. <laughs> uh, it is, and that's a that's a whole discussion that we've had to I had to have a few times with relatives, right? Where they, you preemptively like, "Hey, I'm not arguing with you on the yes, I'm understanding." that you have questions. I don't have answers. I have my own understanding of what it means. You decide from there. And no matter what you decide, I'm not pissed unless you're being openly racist. Yeah. Right. Because I have my stepdaughter is half black. Yep. Right. And being in cold water has its own thing to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Whether you choose to believe that or not, I don't care. I know what it is. Sure. Right. So, and I especially know what it is when people around me say things without understanding that I have a half black stepdaughter. Sure. Right. Like there's an undertone to yes. it all. So, uh, but it's the, it's the, the thing was I was able to have that conversation with somebody because yeah. they were, they asked the question. And at the end of it, there was better understanding. And I was able to convey to him, that we're not doing this in support of anything or right. an organization. We're doing it in the, in the support of the value, right? The value of human life, right. of decency, of, of this is important and this matters. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do whether we lean left or right. I consider uh, the, the, the gym, the business, apolitical. Right. Yeah. We don't have a political opinion. Right. You, you and that's, it always blew my mind leading up to the election, watching people put out in front of their business things, like things supporting one side or the other. Like, all right, you own a business that is about green, not red sure. or blue. You're about money yeah. at this moment. You're trying to help your business. And if you're telling one half of the country that you don't support that or don't like, that's how people view it right mm -hmm. now. Right. So they'll find somewhere else. Yep. Right. This is a business, not. Yeah. And that's one of the things that that we try to do that often, you know, sometimes it gets lost. We try to make value based decisions and it's not about a political leaning. Well, and it can't be right, because if you're doing a big Floyd workout, you also have a Murph workout, which is military, which is legendarily right side. Yep. Right. So it's. You're not speaking to just one side or the other, right? This is but values. Unreasonable people consider that to be that the yeah. the support of just one side versus the other. Yeah. And as we said, it's unreasonable. Yeah. Excellent day. Good talk. We'll chat more about. I imagine we're going down more interesting rabbit holes as this thing progresses. Absolutely. Goodbye, everybody.